What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Write Who You Know. I'm Matt Hausfetter, and this is the screenwriting podcast that's the behind the scenes of the behind the scenes. Um, I guess we should talk about how today is May 1st. Uh, it's 3 o'clock. Uh, the entire town is on pins and needles waiting to see if the Writers Guild of America strikes a deal with the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, which is basically uh, all the studios and the studio heads versus... Uh, a negotiating committee uh, on the writer's behalf. Hopefully we can come to a deal. Uh, frankly, I don't know how we can. Having said that, uh, I kind of want it to all blow up. Uh, it's been untenable. It's not really a way to earn a living anymore. And I got into this, yes, because I love to write, but also because I found that like, oh, I could make a career out of this. And the longer it goes on and the more that these companies make profits and the more shows get produced, it just feels like, it is much harder uh, to earn a living, which makes zero fucking sense. And uh, that's what this is all about. So my fingers are crossed, but if we don't make a deal, it's not going to be the fucking end of the world because it's not like I can get that much work uh, in the Writers Guild anyway. I've had a lot more success working for the Animation Guild, uh, etc. So that's my little spinny spin. But enough about the strike, because I'm sure you can listen to thousands of podcasts about that right now. But only on this podcast are you getting this interview with Joel Church Cooper, the creator of Brockmire. He we uh, wrote on Undateable together. He's written on season two of The Minx. He has written on Future Man for Hulu. He has done original development. He's currently in development at Fox with a real hot uh, 90s comedian. I won't say more, fam. Uh, but I'm really glad he came by because he teaches you, not teaches, we talk about how to make a show on a shoestring budget, which is something that Joel had to do. He was sort of thrown into the fire and told, uh, figure it the fuck out, uh, which a lot of us are. But uh, long story short, he made a great show that ended up on a lot of the years uh, and best of lists. Uh, Alan Sepinwall is a huge fan. Uh, I think it was like on the list of the 30 best shows of the decade. Long story short, if you haven't seen Brockmire, it's currently streaming on Hulu. Uh, and if you haven't seen The Minx, uh, I know season two isn't out yet. It's going to be on Stars. But if you haven't seen The Minx, I don't think you can check it out because it was probably pulled off HBO Max thanks to David Zaslav. So all that said, roll one up because we recorded this on 420. Spark that dube. Have a glass of scotch. Pull that lever on the lazy boy. This is another great searing hot episode of Write Who You Know. Pass. Nope. We love Matt. It's just a really hard time right now. The industry's contracting. Come back to us when you have some bigger attachments. Tell them write what you know. No, tell them write who you know. Because I do have a big mouth and I like to gossip. I was voted... Biggest gossip in my high school class. Oh, that's great. Yeah. yeah, that's great. Have you ever worked with this comedian, Dan Levy? Not not Schitt's Creek Dan Levy, the John Mulaney opener. I I my one of my good friends, Annie, he's one of her best friends from Emerson. So I've met him like once or He twice. loves goss. Yeah. Like yeah. at his comedy shows, he has a bowl and he'll write, like, please leave me goss. It's <laughs> <That's> so <laughs> fucking funny. Well, I the thing that when people would be like, you gossip too much. And I was like, I just like telling stories. I'm a raconteur. I'm a raconteur. And like <laughs> the story of what happened in our life when I was 17 was what happened at last night's party. And if I witnessed it, I'm going to tell other people because in a funny way, that's, you know. 
Joel, what I want to know, first of all, is like, where did you grow up? And what were some of the first things you saw where you're like, or even if it was books or TV or music, where you're like, I want to work in entertainment or I want to be a writer or like, what did you love as a kid? Um, so growing up, I grew up in Sacramento, middle class family. Um, mom worked for the state. My dad works in public access. He runs the sac- he ran for a long for twenty something years, the Sacramento Public Access uh, Station. So were you were like around production at a young age and stuff? I was always at his office. That's and cool. I do think because my sister is all she's my manager. She's a manager in this town. Shouts to Jenny Church Cooper. Jenny Church Cooper Haven. Um, both of us ended up in the entertainment industry. I think there is a connection to my father doing public access and the idea that media should be democratic you know everyone should be able to have a voice um it's not that hard you can take a class you could learn part of it also was watching because he would have to like you know watch the channels to be like is it on is the sound working (laughs) you got you get volunteers you know running a tv station oftentimes it wasn't on and you'd have to call and someone be there like put the tape on you know (laughs) So he would have to, ch- he would, you know, and so we watched a lot of public access programming growing up, which is, you know, about it, Tim and Eric's entire aesthetic was my childhood. Got it. Of watching <laughs> really bad. And it's why I can't really get into, you know, Tim and Eric, because for, for some people that's a new discovery. And for me, it's like, yeah, it's my, my, when I was eight and my dad is like, you know, calling in to be like, it's off sync, you know, <laughs> um, as crazy people, you know, hula hoop in front of a camera or whatever. Um, and but my dad loved both my parents loved movies. Their second date, and they love entertainment. Their second date was they saw Steve Martin when he was just first becoming a stand up. Wow. And they saw him in the first show. And afterwards, he's like, hey, uh, and he actually talks about this in his Born Standing Up. Yeah, I read that. Great book. Great book. And because uh, it's, it's specifically about this time, about like him going, you know, going into TV writing and then out of TV writing into stand up. And he would do this. He would go to shows. He would do his normal stand-up set, which was, you know, alternative but mainstream at the time. And then he would say, I'm going to do a, a second show in about an hour. Uh, if you if you want it's experimental. If you want to come back, come back. And it was like their second or third date. And they were like, I want to come back. You know, what's this experimental thing? And they go back and they did. he did like a show outside. Like he took the whole crowd outside. He took them on a tour. He was like, you know, he was doing some of the – arrow banjo but it was like he was breaking the form and so i do think that there was something about you know my parents got divorced when i was very young but my family always was into specifically comedy specifically um you know my parents are more mainstream but but the snl more you know carson stuff less carson more letterman you know like more what it's not quite alternative but it's it's to the left of the dial a little bit and then my my parents got divorced, and then so my dad has on the weekends, and he liked to go see movies. And so we would see movies every single weekend, sometimes Friday and Saturday. We'd go to the drive-in one of those nights, and then the drive-in would have two movies. So I saw, you know, this is before, this is when cable's just starting coming around, but it's like, you know, home video's kind of around, but it's like not, you know. So there would be second run movies. You know, I saw half of Ferris Bueller because I would fall asleep because I was, you know, for years. Because my dad loved Ferris Bueller and like 
there was you couldn't just three months after a movie came out right this is for the younger listeners yeah three months after a movie came out you couldn't just be like oh let me just press a button or or (laughs) one week after it came out and i'll just buy it for 20 bucks right so if my dad loved ferris bueller we'd have to sit through the second showing and so we just saw a ton of movies and movies that i was probably too young to see um and you know like because sometimes i'll do the math like i just recently watched unforgiven and i remember seeing that in the theater and that's it's a good movie but it is very like violent yeah and so um uh so i i you know so i was like watching it again i was like jesus i remember seeing this when would i see this and i looked at when it came out it was 1991 i was like i was 10 oh my god i was a 10 year old watching <laughs> like you know sex workers get cut up <laughs> yes and, that's specifically what i was going to talk about yeah. like the hookers get cut up <laughs> yes the hookers get cut up and like eventually like you know morgan freeman's like dead body is like displayed like in front of the town like you know it's like a spoilers for a 40 year old movie but um uh so I, he would just take me so i was seeing stuff all the time and then i i was a kid watched a ton of tv so i watched all the sitcoms i basically didn't have cable so i would just from seven to eleven i would just have my schedule of the shows i watched between the four networks and i would just so it's like you know, again, for the children out there, like there was four options. So some t- like I watched six seasons of Coach. I didn't like Coach very much, <laughs> but it was on. But it was on. And I liked it more than the other three shows that were on in that time slot. <laughs> Drew Carey show. Uh-huh. I watched the entire run of never was a huge fan. You know, I love news radio, you know, like Seinfeld. I, you know, I liked Friends. I liked all the good ones, too. But I would watch the bad ones because there was nothing else on. But TV at the time was was junk it was throwaway there was good versions of it and there's bad but movies were the thing that movies were the where good storytelling was where budget was you know that's obviously changed since then but so movies were my passion so early on as a kid i uh hollywood video started trying to take in on uh, blockbuster and their big uh thing was 10 old movies for 10 dollars for 10 days so i just started going down lists i was like 10 11 12 years old i would just go down lists of like westerns best picture winners started going hitchcock movies right and i would I just, love hitchcock so hard yeah, yeah. i'm the biggest hitchcock head Hitch I, I remember seeing vertigo when i was too young but i knew it was fucked up i knew it was about sexual obsession and jimmy stewart you know from it's a wonderful life and harvey was being very pervy to this poor woman <laughs> and um and I, you know, I remember the visceral feeling, you know, there were some movies that really had that effect on me, like, like High Noon was a big one when I was little, um, the graduate. Oh, yeah. And so, so, so then, you know, I was, I became like the movie guy. Like I was, you know. Same in my friends group, like yeah. they're all music guys and like, sure, I like it and have an ear for it, but they were all in bands together. And I was like, no, I'm over here watching Austin Powers. Like, yes. You know? And, and then as soon as I could in, in high school, I worked at a video store went to college, worked at a movie theater, then worked at a video store. So there's basically, you know, and then I came into, I went to UC Santa Barbara for film school and I came in with just a better knowledge of movies because I, you know, it was, you know, I, I had a social life, but I wasn't like, you know, Johnny popular. You watch 10 movies over 10 days, (laughs) Hollywood video, clearly you're by yourself a lot. And, um, uh, so like, you know, I was obsessed it was the thing, the storytelling, getting lost in the stories, the style, 
the fact that you it's it's a well that is bottomless like you know even just now like i love you know south korean movies and you know i've seen you know 50 but i can but i know there's a hundred more out there that are classics that i haven't seen yet you know um and so that just kind of got me in you know but i came in first as a fan sort of critic and then i think you know the thing that was very uh transformative for me in terms of like shifting my mind from like a consumer of something to like what if i try to make something was kids in the hall that was the that was the the most and i've said this to dave foley before which he gets all the time <laughs> <laughs> tell a kid in a hall i'm you're the reason i got into comedy and they'll be like pay me a dollar so you know like I've heard it. i'll be rich with everyone that tells me um uh but i that was on after school when i was 12 and that you know it was canadian it was gay you know um it was experimental they would do short films in it you know like they would not always do sketch um and that blew my mind and that that blew my mind apart so much that like i think once you have an experience of um a mind expansion like that with comedy you want to be a part of it yeah so you know then went to film school came down to improv um, were you UCB or a, uh, a uh, IO like Groundlings or I didn't do Groundlings. I started out at IO, which is Improv Olympic. Um, they were like from Chicago. That's where Del Close. You know, he was the founder. So like you know, everyone that taught me was taught by Del. Um, if you know improv, you know he's like improv Jesus. Did you read that book, uh, Improv Nation, by Sammy Wasson about Del? No. I have it. I'll let you borrow it. I think you'd like it. Dell's stories are very funny because he was an old heroin addict with yellow teeth <laughs> <laughs> who who uh was really cranky and uh inappropriate all that time but he also invented the entire form and had great instincts and you know there's a direct line from Dell to modern American comedy and the, the 50 favorite comedians you've had you know either studied with Dell or work with people who study with Dell. So, you know, that was, I loved doing, I didn't love doing improv, but I loved being a part of the improv community with other funny people who like to do bits. And I was always doing it, be like, this would really help in a writer's room because, you know, I don't, we, we want to get too autobiographical, but like I, I had a job right out of college as an assistant on a sitcom and, um, the writer's room was staffed with improvisers. So my first experience of a writer's room was like bits constantly. Like the PAs were improvisers. So I was just like, what the fuck is happening? <laughs> they're they're acting out the bits with their hands? This is insane. What, I don't know, I can't, and like, you know, I was always used to being one of the funnier people in my school or the, I could always hang with everybody. And like, I was like barely treading water with these people because they were they were doing bits. I'd, I'd never done, I you know joked around before but i never done like you know improvisational conversations for two minutes in character off the drop of a hat like these guys are doing right so so then as soon as i moved to la um you know after that job then i started taking classes right away but always with the intention of getting back to the writer's room which is where my friends who still do improv they were in it for the love of the game like it was a it was an end to itself and I never, and I, in the, if you're really good, you treat it that way. And I, and I've known people who are very successful and they've gone on to write and stuff, but 
or perform or, you know, be on SNL and all the rest of it. But if you ask them, it's like, no, they love the purity of them. And I never, I thought it was me. It was writing out loud to me, but it really helped in writer's room when I did get in. That's good. Yeah. I, I tried to, I did groundlings like a class and I yeah. just like didn't. Again, it was fun, but I was like, I don't know if like I want to do this forever. And like, is this helpful to me? But like, I guess ultimately it was, you know, I like, never really liked groundlings in terms of like the style of improv and comedy, even on SNL, like you're like, oh, it's a, it's a Groundlings character they brought to SNL. You know, it's like, <laughs> to me, Groundlings was actors doing improv and it was actors. That's first. a good description of it because so many of the people in our class were like, I'm an actor, yeah. like very serious. Like there was a particularly one or two gentlemen in that class that were so fucking serious. Yes. And so I would say if you, you know, if you think of being pejorative out there, think about like a classic snl character you know who like it's all performance based Kristen wig target lady that's a groundlings bit you know it's just um it's all performance the other people don't matter you know so like chris Catan doing um mango yes yes okay. groundlings i bit. love mango <laughs> yeah listen it really works on uh, specifically snl that's why to me there's like uh there's a groundlings and snl pipeline because it actor forward stuff, you know, you can replicate it, you know, but I always gravitated towards the more second city IO Chicago sort of sketch school, you know, your Odin Kirks, you know, your, I don't know, all those guys. And that's more written and that's more like, what's the premise, you know, what's the, what's, you know, and so I always sort of gravitated towards that. And I saw some ground link shows and, you know, they, I thought it was funny, but I was like, this is not my thing. And then I was at I.O. and then UCB came out here while I was there. So I was in the first UCB class. And then I never got on a UCB Herald team, but I was on a UCB sketch team. And then did shows at UCB and directed stuff there. And then, yeah. So I, my background is in improv, but I probably haven't, I haven't done improv in probably eight or nine years. And when you were doing improv, like, did you, were you, like, actively trying to, like, write a script to, like, get in a room and have a sample or, like, get an agent? Like, how did you know, like, how do I put the pieces together to eventually get a check at the end of the rainbow here or, like, to find my way into a career or at least a job? I think this is actually, you know, the purpose of this podcast, talking to people who are just starting out or want to start out. I always sort of try to tell aspiring writers the story because I think it's very... Uh, illustrative of like so i so that first job right out of college i was an assistant the writing team worked in santa barbara so they hired me out of santa barbara they were like the consulting eps or whatever so i would drive down be their assistant and then drive back up in santa barbara so i was like getting a taste of you know hollywood while not actually living there i love just the you on the 101 back and just forth. on the 101 in a giant escalade <laughs> trying to be, get him into like hey you guys heard of the dandy warhols you know like whatever Early 2000s music. And, um, uh, uh, like, it was, you know, it was a, it was back in the days when even your bad sitcoms, your low-rated sitcoms went 22, mm -hmm. right? And nothing goes 22 anymore except for, like, three or four things. But even now they'll tell you that, like, the last six, no one, everyone's run on fumes. We've, we've run out of ideas and so there was an opportunity when I was starting out that if you in that back, you know, nine, back six kind of uh, 
time, if you were an assistant, you were a PA, and you had worked on a story, you could hand it into them, and then they'd be like, oh, great, less work, you know? So I did that, and oh, shit, I, that's got, cool. I got, like, whatever. Um, whatever a story credit was in 2004, so maybe, like, $7,000, you know? But, like, I feel like whatever age you were at the time, you were probably like, I'm rich. Not only that, I was six months out of film school, and I already <laughs> yeah, had a credit, that's you know? Amazing. And then I, I'd use that money, and I traveled to Southeast Asia with my girlfriend, my college girlfriend, and, like, and I was like, well, it's all happening, you know? Like, I'm on the fucking, I'm on the track, and, like, everyone at the at the work seems to think I'm pretty funny, and I, I did tell a story, so I'll just, you know, I'll staff soon, and then, you know, I did not have another credit. You can look at my IMDb. It's still on there. It's my first credit. I did not have another credit for six years. Dang. Um, and and what that was me being a PA again, and, you know, and. Set or office PA? uh Both I, I was office pa i was i was a thing called a night pa which doesn't exist anymore i would be the late pa who would stay with the writers past dinner mm-hmm. and then i would deliver the scripts at night got it got um it. and i would do all the copies of all the scripts at night so i was the last person uh to go tough to pitch as the night pa <laughs> no respect <laughs> they you know they did not think i you know would amount to much and then um i was trying to sell stories as a pa didn't wasn't as successful um worked as a pa in a few more shows and then started taking improv classes and i was like i'm not organized enough i'm not like and my grammar is not good enough to go into the writer's assistant track so i need to come at this another way so i was like i'm going to come at it through the improv world the thing about improv is at least for me but i think for many people it is a real it is the best scratching of a creative itch you could ever possibly have. And so that instinct that's in you that's like, I gotta create something, I gotta do something. You in practice, you have a great scene, you do a show, you get a big laughs, you leave. It, that it, that itch has been scratched. You have been satisfied. And I did not write anything for like three years. You know, sketches, yeah. whatever. But like I was not putting myself in a position to staff. For three years, and then I fi- it finally hit me. You know, I was like, "What am I doing?" You know, I'm in my mid twenties. I've been in LA. I'm racking up credit card debt, going from PA job to temp job. I wanted to be a comedy writer. I'm performing on stages. I was a above average improviser. I was not great. I was like, I could try to get better at this, but to what end? And so I sort of. I sort of stopped doing improv and started doing scripted. I, you know, met uh, through an improviser who is now a podcaster and writer, Aaron Gibson. And we were a comedy team for like maybe two years. And then we did a web series together. And I was, and I was, I was part of the thing was I was in it, you know, because I was like, we're, we're at such a small stage. I can't hand something into someone and be like, this is a funny script that, or then shoot it and be like, these two actors are funny, but I wrote that. You know, I was like, I have to be on camera saying funny lines, you know? So then I can send this to people and they'd be like, oh, that guy's funny. The guy who's saying those funny lines who I know wrote it, you know? Yeah. So we did a web series and then that got us like, you know, that got us representation and that sort of kickstarted things. I started doing like low end stuff, you know, I worked for a, a channel called Current TV, which was Al Gore's thing. Mm hmm. Which is I think now, which is now uh, Al Jazeera, <laughs> um, and I worked, I worked for them, 
And I just sort of slowly worked my way back up until I was staffed again in 2011. So that was seven years of toil. And when you got that first, was that, was that your first staff writer job? That was my first staff writer. Did you job. feel like you won the lottery? When I ask everybody this question, is like when you finally got that job where you're like, I'm officially in and you can't take it back. Because of, of how I started of having some success right away and then long periods of not success or at least, you know, not not on a staff. Sounds like being a writer today. Exactly. <laughs> I, I never took it for granted. And I was splitting a salary because I had a writing partner, um, Rune Goubet. He writes on the bear now, he doesn't he? writes on the bear. He's had a very, you know, his credits are uh, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, Superstore, The Bear. Pretty good. Pretty good. Pretty good. <laughs> um, he's was my writing partner. He's brilliantly funny. He's a great actor, too. He was actually a star of one of the shows that I wrote on. Ground Floor. Ground Floor. He was on that show. And um, uh, so we were, so we split a staff writer salary. And splitting a staff writer salary means that you, I was poor. <laughs> like, I had a... One of my teeth, I needed to have a wisdom teeth pulled because it was like cracked. And I couldn't, I didn't, you have to earn enough money in the WJ to get WJ insurance. Mm -hmm. But splitting a staff writer salary, it took me, it took me at the end of my second job before I'd earned enough money that I actually had insurance. To get, so you kept the dead tooth basically. I, I had a dead, <laughs> yes, tooth in the back of my mouth while I was pitching, trying to earn the money that I could, you know. So uh, so I didn't feel that way because I had – and I was a little older. I think I had just turned 30. Yeah. So I was a little older in the room. I was, you know, still on the younger side of a writer's room. Yeah. But I was a little older to start out. But I had had the experience of seeing writer's rooms, working in sitcoms, seeing draft revisions, going down to set. I, You know, all of it, My two of my first – Three first jobs, three three my four three of my first four jobs were multicam, so I was very uh, and the, it was multicam that originally when I out of college, so that process I knew very well and so I was able to jump into the writers room and just start swimming. Like I think of the first season of the show I worked on, I probably pitched five of the ten stories that they they end up using. What show is this, by the way? It's called. It's a classic. I can't believe you haven't heard of it. It was called Men at Work. Starring uh, notoriously canceled Danny Masterson. Mm -hmm. I'll say I did not like him very much <laughs> at the time. We did not keep in touch. Um, and it was on TBS and it was a multicam about bros, friends working at a uh, men's magazine, which even at the time I was like, I don't think there are men's magazines. Yeah, like Maxim. Yes. Ma like I, I was in a bathroom recently, saw Maxim, and I was like, this is a relic. Like, yes. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, you know, so I, so I came in hard. I was like, I, I was like the, I was like the, the, the horse that had been penned up, you know, ready to race for too long. And so I just like charged out and I would, you know, er, my biggest problem as a young writer was I pitched too much. I would get stuff in. I always got stuff in, but, um, there was a added, it's, it's gotten better since then but there was an attitude at the time this is like you know early 2010s a lot of those guys worked in the 90s and you know there was just an attitude of staff writers are seen and not heard and that you can speak in like a side room but you don't you don't have the answers so you can't pitch which is 
interesting because when the show we met on was all staff writers. Yeah. So that wasn't an option, <laughs> you know. But um, but it was like I would get in trouble for talking too much, you know, or pitching too much. Like and, someone would pull you aside literally and be like, hey, Joel, I noticed uh, having too many good ideas. So, so if you could tone it down. Well, and, and my point would be that I'm getting stuff and they're like, yeah, you are. But people are more annoyed <laughs> at how much you're pitching than they are impressed that you're getting some stuff, and including the showrunner of the second show I ever worked on. I kept getting stuff in and he kept being, that's actually a good idea. He would say it every, that's, that's actually good. He would uh, That's so like, fucking demeaning. He would sometimes say it multiple times a day. And I told all the other writers, I was like, he, when he likes an idea of mine, he says it's actually good. And then every time he would say it, then the room would crack up and he wouldn't know why. Mm -hmm. And no one would tell him because then it would be, you know, bad for both of us. So um yeah, so that was sort of me starting, you know, long way into the career. Um, you know, and it and I'm just recently started to get it back into writing screenplays. Um, you know, and then, you know, but, but, you know, TV sort of writing TV, working in TV, you know, consuming TV, like the rest of the world <laughs> sort of started consuming all of my time. Um, but it, you know, started out with movies and then by the time I, I, with the Sopranos, I got it. I was like, oh, television will be the dominant form of storytelling. Cause it can, cause it, it's, it can do. You know, because I, I just the way I thought about it was, you know, The Godfather Part One and Two is maybe the best two movie. You know, is two of the best movies of all time. They tell one story. It's six hours of storytelling. The Wire is, you know, sixty. Yeah, like The Wire is so much more deep and complex and interesting and thought provoking. Do you like season two of The Wire? By the way, I love season Me two. Me too. Of the Wire. Everybody's like, oh yeah, fucking no. season two. I'm like, you're wrong. I mean, Ziggy is annoying. Yeah, sure. And the duck stuff. He, it, it doesn't. It would, but but the Nikki Sabatka. Yeah. Who's Paula Schreiber? He was great. Yep. The guy Chris Bauer. I'm pulling names now. Chris Bauer, who played the bald guy who like ran the docks. Yes, yes, yes. Who, like, Ziggy's dad. Ziggy's dad. Yeah. Love him. He was fucking great. And Frank, the, Frank Shabatka. And it was the idea of I was a huge wire fan. I was Me too. like I Me was too. we can I, nerd out on wire. Please. I was the I was the white guy in bars in the late two thousands <laughs> pinning people against the wall and being it's the greatest goddamn show you've ever seen. You gotta watch this and like I was notorious for you know, and then it's like there was like that stuff white people like blog, mm -hmm. and then like there was one day it was the wire and every single friend sent it to me, <laughs> right? And um are you a season five apologist or do you stand by the end like with the you know with the McNulty putting homeless people in houses and I I think season five is by far the worst season. Mm -hmm. And I think season two had the reputation that season five actually should have had in terms of like it's a bit of a misfire. There's ideas that work, there's ideas that won't. The, but the, what was great about two is, and it, it's actually, it's very, I, 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 it's like, it's one of those things where at the time I was like, oh, what a swerve. I don't know, but I, I liked it, but then it just stayed with me because, you know, the, it's about all the institutions of Baltimore, including uh, working class people who work with their hands. And, and, and season two is about those jobs are going away, those good union jobs where you earn, you know, $25 an hour. And, you know, like help lifting things off the docks. Those jobs are going away. And what happens when those jobs, what do those guys do? You know? Yeah. Um, what happens when a certain sort of reliable um, 
integrated, you know, because there was black and there was Polish and like in the in the show, right? These like, you know, a lower class sort of job where there was at one point I could reach the middle class through this working class job. Those are going away. Well, what, are, what? Where do those people go? What? How do they earn? Try to earn money? You know, like I loved that the the, the sort of you know the totality of how they're looking at Baltimore coming around in five to do the, the, the newspaper reporting, which David Simon knew so much about. Cause that, you know, yeah, I'm a huge David Simon guy. Me too. And the greatest thing that ever greatest for you I ever got was, uh, David Simon was really into Brock Myers. That's actually a great segue, Joel, because I was going to say, uh, I've had a bunch of people on and they take me through their career and we can talk about the rumor river, but I have not had, someone who has created show run a show that a was well liked yes. and b uh considered a successful both by the critics critics and audience members and so i just wanted to hear you take me through that process of what that was like because look even animation takes it's a monumental sisyphusian task to yeah. get and a miracle to get anything made and so i was just so curious of like you know, did you think or know it was going to be and 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 just sort of you can just free associate really about Brockmire because I think a lot of people will be interested to hear about it. Um, so Brockmire started one of my, you know, jobs, which I didn't mention and sort of the seven years in between credits is uh, after I worked at Current, I did some online back when people used to get paid to make online videos. <laughs> Um, uh, and they weren't just uh, content creators from in front of their ring lights at their house, right? Or the house they rent to do their <laughs> influence. <laughs> um, uh, I worked at Funny or Die, and as part of Funny or Die, like throughout my career, you know, I'm a huge, so you know, I'm a big uh, movie person, entertainment person, comedy person, but I was always also a big sports person. I played sports my whole life. Um, yeah, we. I always knew that about you. You were like a baseball nut. I liked, I love the San Francisco Giants. Um, I, you know, I like baseball. I'm, I played football. I got recruited to play college. I didn't, I went to film school instead. I'm, you can't, I, if you can't feel my size through the mic, I'm about six foot four, <laughs> about 275. So I was an offensive lineman, defensive end. So I, I love watching football. But the, and what really helped me, honestly, the biggest leg up I had in my career was, it's it's you know I wrote on the ESPYS like there's all kinds of things I've gotten through the the thin Venn diagram of sports fan comedy nerd. It's not that many of us. It, it's like me and the Sklar brothers. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so when I was at Funny or Die, all of the other comedy nerds who I was at UCB with, they were like, I don't fucking want to work at the NFL Network. Do you want to work? And I was like, Yeah, I'll fucking work at the NFL Network. You know, I'll meet Warren Sapp. You know. <laughs> Um, do you want to, uh, oh, hey, do you, do you know anything about this baseball player? I know exactly who that baseball, do you want to do a thing with Mike Tyson? I'll do something with Mike Tyson, you know? So I, I was, you know, so I just kept getting this, you know, the sports stuff. And one of them was at Funny or Die, Hank Azaria had this character. They had done one video, which I didn't write, but he wanted to make appearances in this for the NFL network in character, like, you know, doing like highlights. And an old baseball character, baseball announcer. I grew up listening to baseball on the radio in Sacramento back before we had cable. You know, when there's no options, I would just turn on the family radio dial to 680 KNBR. And I would, in summer days, just like listen to the game, go outside, play catch, turn it up, listen to the window. You know, so the patter of old school radio announcing baseball and the idea of 
going to give you a count. Then I'm going to continue my anecdotes. And then, oh, there's an action. How do I blend it back in? I just knew the structure. And so right away, I wrote for him and this character. And he was, like, very excited because he'd been doing this character as a bit for a while. And, you know, he can improvise uh, Hank Azari's. But, you know, he is one of the most talented people I've ever worked with. And he can sometimes, but what he really excels at is when he's given written material that he can then dance off of, right? So so he was really excited right away. And they paid me before I was in the union, so I did not even get union minimums. They paid me to write a movie script of Jim Brockmeyer. And so that was my first, uh, that was my first big check. I got a check, I wrote a movie for I don't know. This is so interesting. Twenty thousand dollars, <laughs> twenty, which is way below minimum. <laughs> way minimum probably is like eighty, hundred. Yeah, probably now. Probably just right around there. Yeah. yeah, I was not in the union, so you know. But they cut me a check for like ten grand, to you know, to start, and I just and I put it down on a car, you know, and I got like. It was a used car, but it wasn't that used, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I'm paying, I paid for this car with my right, you know? That was a big deal. And so the move, this first season of Brockmire uh, ended up being the first two acts of that movie script. And the movie was a go, I wrote it for Marissa Tomei. Marissa Tomei was going to be the uh, Jules Marissa character. Um, and if you think about it, Amanda Peet and Marissa Tomei, because Amanda Peet eventually played the character, a lot of overlap, mm-hmm. you know, like in terms of like, you know, beautiful women can do comedy, can do drama, you know, um, strength on screen, you know, can go toe to toe with an actor like Hank. So she was going to be the star. We, we had cast it. And, and and my whole thing was I got twenty grand to, to write it, but I got a fifty grand production bonus. The second they rolled film, I got fifty grand. Amazing, love those production bonuses. <laughs> so it was right. I by by this point, I was on ground floor, so I was on my third, um, maybe, yeah, it was on my it was on my third job, and so I was like you know starting. I was having a TV writing career. It looked like it was going someplace, and then I was my wedding was coming up. And, you know, we were paying it for ourselves. I was, again, sharing now a story editor salary. Big difference. Story editor, you double your money. If you, so it's like when you make story editor, it's a big deal. That's yep. why they keep, try to keep it staffed for so long. So um, so my wedding was 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 coming, and we were paying it for ourselves, so we were trying to keep the cost down. Oh, yeah, but the movie, uh, same thing. But the movie was, you know, they're in Shreveport. We're in pre-production. And, I, and my wife loves to... Um, you know, talk about the good things. Imagine they're going to go well. She wants to live in a future where all things are possible. So she'd be like, well, they're going to shoot Joel's movie. And, and I'm like, but, but we don't know. We don't know. <laughs> Marissa Tomei is going to be Joel. No, we don't know. We don't know. We don't know. <laughs> I Let's love not. it. I love it. Because I was like, it's an independent movie. Who knows? And um, I, I can tell you why the money ran out. Because it's a crazy Hollywood story. But we don't have to even get into that. But they, the money ran out and they did not shoot. But, but the whole wedding thing is, I, they were down there. So I thought, so I was like, honey. Invite everyone you want. 20 more people, bring them. Signature cocktail, let's order it. <laughs> Daddy's about to get 50 grand. <laughs> so let's just throw another 10 on the wedding. And then a week after I said that, they're like, oh, it's done. There's, We're all leaving Shreveport. This movie is never going to happen. And uh, and I was fucked. <laughs> and then, you know, we, we, we ended up paying for it. But then they were like, 
by the time I was on Undateable, they were like, we still like this script, and we think, you know, you get the voice, do you want to pitch it as a TV show? And I was like, oh, yeah. I, if anything, I know TV better than I know writing screenplays at this point, so I could definitely do it. And then the thing, I'm sure, you know, you've had other people from Undateable, and, you know, people have talked about Bill Lawrence, who was our boss on Undateable before. But the thing that really w was great about Bill was he was always letting you into the process of what showrunning was. Yeah. This is how I talk to the network. This is how I, you know, this is how I cast. This is how I edit. Now, I think half of it was bragging because <laughs> he had figured it out and yeah. he wanted to tell people that I'd, I've figured because he has. And the other part was like he did like mentoring, but he wasn't, he never took me aside and he never really took anybody aside. These were just things he was throwing. Yeah, out if you to paid the attention, if you paid attention, he was giving you tools. And so I was an exec story editor, which is the third highest, the third lowest level, you know. Um, and the other thing he was good about was I was like, "Hey, I need to pitch this show. Can you? Can I let you out of the room? Can can you let me out of the room?" And he was like, "Yeah, I'll let you. You know, like this is the thing." By the way, just a just a quick pause on that. I'll never forget. I actually know this because I'll never forget being on set one night when we went live. You came barreling out through a stage door with a bottle of Colossa Azul. <laughs> I was like, what the fuck? And you're like, do you know about this tequila? And I was like, yeah, I do. You're like, it's for Bill. I was like, of course it is. Yeah, because I sold Brockmire to uh, IFC, which, you know, at the time they still made shows. I don't think they make shows anymore. I think they just air like 70 show reruns. But, um, you know, it at the time it was and probably still is the lowest end cable you could possibly be it's like the lowest end that's still union is ifc but it was my own show and it was low budget it was uh the first season was uh $900,000 an episode Dang. Which, uh that's lower than undateable yeah it's low as low as you can get it's, it's lower low. than my animated show it's low as fuck <laughs> it's low as fuck so so i what i had to do was i had to write all the scripts basically ahead of time and we block shot everything we shot it like a movie and we shot the first season eight episodes in 22 days <laughs> how <laughs> two cameras baby oh and my God. Um, did you have two units going at the same time no we just had two cameras running all the time and the thing was i mean hank was in almost every scene and he was off book because he had been on broadway uh many different times he was in the original cast of spam a lot so like that kind of theater training of like getting off book and so he could just he was so off book that we'd be like oh fuck we're already set up like this can you do the monologue from the next episode right now to camera while we're set up and we have the same lighting and the same he'd be like yeah you know so those kind of things were why we how we were able to it i was also you know i'd got i'd gotten my start doing web shows and funnier die videos and that kind of scrappy non-union you know i was down in macon georgia you know like lifting things with you know laying the track for the dolly i was lift, you know i was the showrunner and i was like you know doing manual labor because we had to make you know the day and um, so, yeah, so we sold it to IFC. Um, I was on Undateable. I left to go do the show. And um, uh, at first, they, they, bought, they bought six scripts. No, five scripts. So I had to write those. But I, and then I turned those in. And they're like, okay, we'll, we're going to pick up the show. And then we'll give you three more scripts. I think I gave... Uh, bill the fancy tequila when i sold it and got the five scripts got it um 
and then was that a was that a moment where you celebrated a little bit when you got the call or like how did you get the how was the information relayed to you that we are going to make your show my producer joe farrell did the old ryan seacrest rope-a-dope on me which i did not love he didn't do it that long but he was like well we got some uh some pretty big news about the thing you're doing a show you know did one of those and i was like i didn't even i was so excited to have time to be like hey man don't fucking jerk me off <laughs> jerk me around for uh this is the biggest call of my life and um yeah it was like i was in shock the only other time were you at work or were you at home or do you i was at home i was at home and um the only other time i sort of got a call like that was um now i'm jumping back but um I around early on in my career, I after the Brock Meyer movie script because people thought it was a funny script, so it had gotten passed around, and um, and I'd started working in TV, and uh, Marty Lisak, who was like a big agent at ETA, and it's like Judd Apatow's agent, Will Ferrell, Zach Galifianakis, those types. He um, he called me out of the blue. It was. I think it was at, he was at CA before they made the big move, and I was at CA, and he was like, uh, Joel Marty Lisek, as if we had talked many times. Uh -huh. And I was like, I've never, you know. And he was like, Joel Marty Lisek here, listen, I, this Brock Myers script is great. I have a baseball idea here I think you'd be great for, star, you know, uh, starring Gary Shandling, and, uh, you know, we, I think you're the right voice for that. And so, like, I wrote a Gary Shandling pilot. That's cool. That's um, amazing. Where, where right before he died, where literally I think the last call he ever got and the last person he ever talked to was Marty Lisak being, saying, Gary, we got to get these notes in. <laughs> he killed him. He, I, the, he, I, he passed literally. <laughs> Some people have blamed me for Gary Shandling's death for, you know, um, but that getting the Gary Shandling call, because that was really early in my career and I was like, Holy fuck! I might write the 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 third, you know, Gary yeah. Shandling TV show. That's like, amazing. what a fucking! And then, and I was I was doing punch up on my friend Austin Earl's pilot, and you know, you're like, what are you up to? Oh, blah blah blah. Oh, uh, what are you up to? Oh, I'm writing an untitled Gary Shandling pilot. So he plays the baseball owner. What? And Tom Warner uh, is producing, owns the Red Sox. So we're wow, just gonna, we're gonna wow. so we're gonna set it in Fenway, and. Um, uh i'm telling them this everyone's like wow blah, blah. we you know we go in we see the rehearsal we come back we're and someone checks their phone they go uh joel you might want to uh check the your phone oh no like, deadline gary shandling dead <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> oh, uh, so you know that is the thing about this life and this career in this industry i i do feel what saved me is I don't expect anything. Sometimes I'll dream a little bit. Like when I got the phone call, oh, imagine, like I said, writing the third. But then I was like, it probably won't go. He's, you know, he's hesitant to get back into it. I'll just get paid for the script. You know, I'm always pulling myself back to reality, not letting myself dream of the possible future so that I'm protecting myself so that when Gary Shandling drops dead at, in his mid-60s, he was in pretty good shape. Um, it was a hypochondriac. Yeah. So people didn't believe him. Like on the phone call, you know, he's like, I don't feel so good. And they thought he was just bullshitting get out of the notes. Ugh. And uh, uh, he wasn't. He was dying. So he died. And, you know, and I could have been like, oh, my God, you know, 
what what was but i was like no gotta, i have a job i'm staffed like i gotta keep going i'll get another thing you know yeah and so and so even the call even the call for i think i got the call that it got picked up at uh at undateable um but even then it's like making a show for eight hundred thousand dollars an episode or maybe 870 or something um in georgia I've never show ran before. Funny or Die is producing this. They've never done a TV show before. My wife is like, it's so exciting. It's going to go so well. And I looked at her before I left, and I was like, this could be an utter debacle. We could not finish this. There's a and it like and it was for a while. Like it really took like a lot of talented people, you know, and me, sort of, you know, holding this thing together with you know thread and twine and. But the thing was, we we had Amanda Pete, we had Hank Azaria, um, we had this amazing cast. Uh, Tyrell Jackson Williams was really yeah, he was great. He's great. Um, he's on Party Down now, and we did, and it was like, and I realized, and you know, and we had a good director. Tim Kirkby directed the first season. He directed the pilot Fleabag. He did uh, Look Around You uh, with Peter Serafinowicz. That was his big original credit. He did uh, Dairy Girls. He uh -huh. shot that. He's like a big English uh, comedy director. So he was great, and he could work fast. And um, we did it. And But then the thing was, we, and then the pilot comes to me, you know, and it's awful, mm. you know? Ugh. And did so. You, did you fucking want to jump out of a window? It was it was tough. It was a tough night, and the thing, but but having gone to film school, they you know I made one movie there my senior year, and you know you watch your first assembly and you want to fucking die, you know, because it's so bad. They showed us the the pencil of the first episode of Fairfax, and one of my partners literally was like, "This is." awful and i was like dude it's the first draft of a pencil test like it's not going on the air tonight yeah, yeah, like yeah. you know and i think yeah. you have to remind yourself that i do it yes it, that is a thing of like and the other thing from that experience and from making things and stuff and editing things one i knew i can fix i can fix a lot of these problems which is my this needs to be tighter that joke needs to be included instead we can go from here to there we need a new opening you know like i, I could just do the math in my head and figure it out but i was also like you know, and I kept saying it. I was like, you know, this is the worst it's ever going to be. You know, this is the worst. Like every day from now until it airs, we'll, we're going to be making it better than it is right now. And then by even by like a week later, it was like, oh, this is a tight pilot. And still, if if you go back and like I tell people, you know, because we're all four seasons are on of Rock My on Hulu. I was like, you know, you don't need to watch the whole show. I think the whole show is interesting for me to end. Each season we move to a different location. We have new characters. It, it's sort of narratively interesting like that. Yeah, it's interesting because I feel like so many places, if you were like, yeah, in every season we're going to meet new characters and go to a different place, they'd be like, no, you're not. I did feel the IFC of it all was um, the handcuffs are incredibly low budget. No one's going to stumble on this. On my uh, cable package, uh, you know, IFC was 330. <laughs> so... So uh, that's bad. The good news is my studio was the people I used to make videos for at Funny or Die, and one executive at IFC who was like, I don't know, if we got something, we're going to air it. So, so they gave me virtually no notes, and I was like, oh, I can do whatever I want, you know, like legitimately. And so I was like, what don't you do in TV? And I was like, the characters never leave. They never 
you know, because you have existing sets and yeah. it's too expensive. And but we shot on location. We had no existing sets. Our existing sets were stadiums that already existed. And so I was like, we could just because the whole point of the show was he's trying to work his way back up to the majors. He can't stay in the same town forever. So I was like, we're going to move in season two and we're going to move. In. And I pitched them that right away. And I even pitched them when we were shooting season one that he was eventually because he was a drunk. And I was like, he's eventually going to get sober. And they're like, what? You know, and I was like, I was taking these big swings because I was like, we're on the we're on the back end. I was like, we're basically, you know, as far as entertainment business, one step above college radio, you know, <laughs> the only shot we have to get notice is if we're if I'm pushing the jokes, I'm pushing the narrative, I'm pushing, you know, can I can I do a sort of prestige comedy that has dramatic moments, but we don't lose the jokes? Because that's the, you know, if you look back at the, you know, most prestige comedies of the last decade, and you'd be like, maybe there's three jokes in an episode, you know? And I was like, what if I could keep the the hit rate high, jokes in every scene, but could I also do, you know, and because Hank is, I eventually, and the thing too was seeing him on set, I was like, I started realizing the possibilities of where we could take this in season one because I was like, oh, Jesus, he's like a fucking F1 formula car. Like, he can do anything. Why am I having him just do loops around a fucking track? Like, I should take him on the road. Like, I should really push him and see what he can do and take him to uh, and take this character and this actor to places that they're like, I did not think this sketch character was going to go there. I was like, well, he can do it as an actor, so let's see what he can do in this character. And so that was my whole thing. And then Seppenwall, Alan Seppenwall, got behind it really early and then got his critic friends into it. And so, you know, we always did okay, uh, you know, ratings-wise. Certainly for IFC, we were their number one thing. But um, we, were never, we were always a cult hit from day one, but we got incredible reviews. We're like, you know, top tens of the year. You know, Seppenwall lists this is like the 30th best show of the decade. That's amazing. Yeah. Do you have his Mad Men or Sopranos book or the Deadwood thing that Solar Zeitz did? Um, I have his Sopranos book. Yeah. Um, Are you Deadwood guy, by the way? I'm a Milch head. Oh, dude. To the to the core. So you don't have the Deadwood Bible? I don't have the Deadwood Bible. I have Milch's autobiography. I too, read that too. But I haven't read it yet. Okay. I haven't read it. Yet. Okay. But, we'll go uh, back to Brockmeyer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, like Milch's Milch and Sorkin are like the two guys were like I like it good, I like it bad, because. To me, the difference is the whole the whole thing. It's it's like well, they've lost the plot. They've lost. They're the best writers, and even they've lost the ability to tell what is the good idea and what is the bad idea. And so, to me, that's what I'm on the lookout for. Right? It's like I'm trying to police myself of like, is that the right idea? Is that right? Am I repeating myself? Like you know, and. So I, I study in some ways the bad works by these great writers more than the good works because you know the Steve Jobs you know screenplay the Social Network screenplay they're about as perfect as something can be, and then you can watch clips of the newsroom <laughs> online that are as bad and as ponderous <laughs> and uh, and just over the top in their stupidity uh, and sanctimony as anything that has ever been made, you know? Have you seen the clip of... Uh, I watched, I watched like, the full season the, or the two? Pl the plane when they find out Osama bin Laden's been shot. I don't remember. Okay, just everyone Google that. <laughs> Newsroom, Osama bin Laden plane, 
it is it is a just a great terrible four minutes of television that you cannot believe uh only someone of sorkin's ability and power could uh get that on the air anyways so i'm always obsessed with milch you know this i everyone who worked on it i was like tell me more tell me more you know w earl brown was in a sitcom i just like sat him down and i was like i want to know every story you know every story and i want to know about that fight that you had with uh the other henchman from uh hearst's henchman and he was like and that was an hour-long story that was fucking great <laughs> um so anyways so i i i love that are you saving his book for like a treat? Is it like a treat like we used to do in the writer's room? Like, oh, and we'll have a treat, you know, um, like a, a three o'clock coffee Honestly, treat. I'm just, uh, you know, we can get into it, but I'm so busy right now, right now, because of the strike. I basically am finishing a pilot and that has to be turned in by May 1st and finishing a movie that has to be turned in by May 1st and getting notes on both, you know? So I'm sort of, I, I literally... You know, I wake up. I took time off for this because I wanted to see my friend. That is so nice of you, by the way. Who I haven't seen in a long time. And the best thing about going on your friend's podcast is seeing your friend, right? You know? Um, But I I literally have no, like, I were, I I stopped to, when my kids come home, we do dinner. I try to, like, hang out with them, play with them. Lately, my oldest is into watching movies with me, which is the fucking best. Yeah. I got her into Miyazaki. That's and cool. It's been really great. I, you know, and then I bought her some Miyazaki toys, and I was like, I'm really trying to like, I'm fueling it. Yeah, extra hugs, daddy's love. Mm-hmm. We're gonna watch a movie together. Mm-hmm. You know, my wife is like, you, you're. She's only two. She doesn't need to watch so much movies. I'm like, we're watching like classics, and she loves it. Mia, like everybody's like movie. I'm like, how are you gonna say no to that? And I'll tell you this: as a father who's, you know, got kids a little older than you, YouTube is constantly pulling back to non-narrative you know influencer fucking i'm gonna talk over people playing roblox it's constantly pulling away from story that's the you know in their mind story's tough you gotta you know and you really gotta fight against it you gotta push to, so now me and my wife will say like you can watch something on tv but it has to have a story and they're like oh you know <laughs> this is the you know i wish the wj could strike against my children <laughs> <laughs> Um, but anyways, Brock Meyer, yeah. So so season one was like almost it was it was the hardest thing I've ever da- done. I was it was I was in the eye of a hurricane, you know, making decisions constantly, you know, patching holes in the boat as it was sinking, bailing it out, and then we started cutting it. And I I think it's like, you know, I always have said that like I'm a pretty good writer, but I'm a great rewriter. Like, you know, like, which is, I think what makes me a good writer in the room is like, I can pitch on anything. I can be like, oh, this could be a solve if we did here or whatever. And on my own works, like I, 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 I respond to notes very well because it's like, here's my first draft. Oh, this, uh, this doesn't work. This doesn't, oh, okay. Well, if that, if you think that doesn't work, oh, here's my solutions. And, and, you know, it's been a common thing in my career. People have been like, executives were like this second draft i was a little scared at first (laughs) (laughs) but this this is this is exactly you know and so that ability the rewriting it's what i did well on improv too i was really good at second beats i could see the first beat and be like oh this would be funny if i did this and you do that and they'll know the game right away if i say this line and then boom second beat of a herald you know funny so um editing is the same Editing is, and I I love editing. I Me hate too. I hate production. Love editing. Production is, you know, I was like, production is um, twelve rounds of a fight, 
where even if you win, you got punched in the face for an hour, you know? <laughs> That's a great way to put it. So, so I don't like it. It's not fun. Um, especially cause it, even as a showrunner, it's like, you know, you have power it, almost in all ways. It kind of except on set, you know, especially in ours. Cause we had one director, the whole thing. So that's kind of their domain. You know, I can go in and be like, I don't think we have it. Or like, this is a funny line. You know, I could fly in stuff, but I'm not in control anymore. So if I'm not in control and I'm, and I'm just suffering for it, it's not fun. <laughs> Editing is like, it's like that show chopped, right? <laughs> it's like, I got, I got these ingredients. I, how do I make a scene? You know, and the ways in which I could figure out like, oh, wait, if we steal this shot from over here and someone does a voiceover and then I'll connect us, you know, that sort of, you know, magic, though, that's I really liked editing. So then I really think I was very helpful the whole time, but especially in season one of like reining it in and like making it tight. And the other thing was I wrote the scripts too fat because I was um used to fatter scripts from multicam and using used to having the ability to cut things <laughs> we couldn't you know and so and so all of the episodes were fat but the thing and we had to, to pull things out constantly but the thing that it got me one it taught me how don't write you know how what scenes will be cut like i pitch that in rooms all the time that i'm not running i'll be like this scene will be cut you will never see this scene nothing happens in it i know it's funny we all like it but this character, you know, still goes from A to B without this scene, so we don't need it, right? I, that was I learned that from pulling entire scenes that was on a on a twenty two day shoot that took us four hours, like wastes of time, right? Yeah, you don't want to do that again. And but the thing was, I got I, I taught me to like cut it tight, cut it twenty one thirty. That was what we had to do because it was on broadcast TV twenty one thirty, not this forty five minute comedy that we have now or ever everyone's languid and we're really gonna sit in it let's let's see check it out on that d storyline you know beef is 40 minutes and i'm like why like at, at the 32 minute mark i'm always going like was this episode almost over I and have, i like it i haven't seen beef yet because again i'm so moving but um uh but i agree i'm always, like a full half hour i'm like okay like i can do that but when we start pushing into 40 I, I, you know and especially like the, what used to kill me was um, uh, un, uh, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, which is a show I liked, and I probably watched most of the whole thing. But when it moved to Netflix and they would do the Carlac Tina Fey pace, you know, in a full half hour, I, at a certain point, I felt like I was being jackhammered with jokes. <laughs> where I would be like, I remember I laughed three times, but I honestly couldn't tell you what because it's just like right in your forehead. It's like joke, 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 joke. For a full half hour, that pace works at 21. So, so at 21 minutes, because you're just you're in, you're out. And so it got me into cutting it down and then writing to that going forward, like hard jokes. How do we set it up? You know, when do we cut after the punchline? Like real, you know, sort of standard stuff. But I, I learned all of those skills doing Brock Meyer. And, and it's even served me when I haven't on shows that I haven't been show running on because I can now pitch from. The edit bay, pretty much. You know, like this is, you know, you're not going to need this. We can go from here to there, and so I'm saving production money by changing it in the rewrite. You know, yeah. Um, so you know, it was. It's it certainly it's my last credit until because um, we ended in 2020. We ended in 20. Our fourth season uh, was uh, moved 20 years ahead 
into the future, which was an apocalyptic future where disease and poverty were ravaging America. And it was, uh, there was a civil war going on and we came out in March, 2020. <laughs> insane. insane. <laughs> and, uh, that was, that's my last credit. And then, you know, I've, I've sold pilots since then and I've been in development and I'm sure as you know, development is the least fucking, what's fun is being in a room with I funny know. people. I know. And what's not fun is being by yourself doing free work. Dude, my agents don't understand for, since July, since Fairfax ended, I read the staffing grid. I send letters to showrunners because I know like, hey, I don't have cool credits and it's just, it was always incredibly challenging. They're like, why do you want to go be on someone's staff? I'm like, because it's the most fucking fun you can have. You think I like sitting in the fucking half gym in my house by myself? Yeah. Writing into oblivion? No. You know, me growing up loving The Simpsons in high school, taping them off TV, you know, on VHS, editing out, like stopping the tape when the commercials So I would I try to edit out the commercials. But That's like, hilarious. I love that. You know, and then I ta- I did it, I did it at SLP. So I could get like six hours of Simpsons. And then I was the guy that had the Simpsons. So people would come over, we'd smoke fat, watch Simpsons, like, and we'd do the jokes and we'd laugh and we'd riff. And like, then I went, you know, did improv, right? And then hanging out and doing bits and, you know, and that, and that's what, a, when a writer's room is good, that's what it is. It's, it's a group of people, you know, the sum being greater than their parts, making each other laugh, finding the funny and, um, I've never laughed as hard or as long uh, outside of a writer's room or, or around comedy writers. It's like, you know, all this whole time telling the story, right? Like, you know, um, starting out, movie guy, elementary school, you know, I had friends, but I wasn't like, I was like, these are, no one's, I haven't found my people yet. In high school, I'll find my people. Okay. I was in high school. I was like film school. Film school. I'm a movie guy. I'll find my people in film school. I did not. I didn't find them until the world of improv and the world of, of the writer's room. That's when I found my people. I was like cynical, funny, open, um, loves a bit, loves to laugh, you know, uh, men, women, you know, all races, a lot of Jewish people. <laughs> we ruin everything. Even no, writers room. <laughs> I love, you know, listen, you know, the, the, uh, the, the, the funniest thing about the Jewish, the sort of Jewish nature of a writer's room is like every show I've been in, they'll pitch like a camp story or like a color war story. <laughs> and I'll be like, guys, it's a very East Coast Jewish <laughs> camp thing. <It's> so <laughs> it true. is not universal. It's so true. Like if I said, oh, we're going to do a color war episode, 70% of America would have no idea what the fuck you're talking about, you know? Yeah. Um, they sort of riff on that in, uh, and went on American Summer, right? That's kind of the whole bit about that. So uh, I feel like I've been talking for too long. No, Joel, I was going to say, I was about to wrap it up and say, A, thank you so much for coming here to do this. B, are you ready on the Minx right now? Did you just finish the Minx? I, we, we finished Minx season two a while ago. We didn't even get into that. I had the privilege of working on a show that got canceled with two days of production to go. <laughs> but it got back. Did it get picked back yeah, up? Yeah, Lionsgate, you know, they had paid for the whole thing. What's crazy is, because you know when Zaz Zazloff was like getting out the scissors and burying Batgirl, we you know had gotten picked up and Minx season one got really good reviews. I didn't work on Minx season one, uh, but it had gotten very good reviews. But I think the ratings were you know middling and it's expensive. But you know in the old world, okay, we're gonna pick up season two. They did. We're we're writing the scripts, and then I was like, oh, 
he's going to just cancel it. We'll get paid for our 20 weeks, but he's just going to pull the plug. He didn't. He lets it go all the way through production, then cancels it on the last week before the on the New Year, so he could. They essentially let it go for the tax break. I think they knew they were going to cut it. That's insane, right? That's insane. They let us do all of that work, and they paid for it. They, you know, they they paid Lionsgate for the entire season, so then Lionsgate had a free show that they could just take out and then you know and sell it for like a third of what it would normally cost, and someone just like got a new show for basically nothing. And so now it's going to be on stars and it's very, it's a fun, like feminist, queer, you know, show about um, pornography with male nudity, you know, and it's a, it was a very, and, and, you know, Roe got overturned in the room when we were there and it was, it's mostly female, mostly younger writing staff. You know, it was nice to sort of be in an environment these days where it was like, it was it was fun, but it got to be a little political, and we got to have a little bit of voice of and put our anger into you know some storylines, including there's a sort of corporate versus art storyline that, that very much echoes what we were going through in the room with uh, David Zasloff trying to reinvent media. Um, so yeah, that's coming out on Stars, and then um, anything else to I have? Yeah, anything else to plug? this pilot goes i got i i sold a pilot right before um the strike netflix i mean not sorry netflix i was gonna say network or cable network Network. oh we love that can you tell me what the plot is or should we do it off pod and keep it low um uh i don't know you can tell me what network it's on it's fox network i love a fox play so um we you know which is i've been doing this long enough to be like Okay, if Rupert Murdoch pays me money, you know, <laughs> it's okay. I just want—I just want to pay my mortgage. Me too. But um, but uh, what's nice about it is they don't have a studio. They're like tiny now, you know, because he—he this is the from the succession. This is the rump that he kept. He kept uh-huh. Fox. He kept Fox News, the Wall Street Journal, and like and basically his newspapers. But he sold like right the studio. So they don't have a studio. It's just two executives, and that we have a pretty established comedy star and it's an, I'll just say it's an army comedy, but I have a nice twist on the army comedy. Okay. And, uh, uh, you know, they like it as a fun workplace sitcom and, and I am, you know, I'm not an army guy, but I thought I had a fun way in and I do think, I'll just tell you. So, uh, (laughs) this, the, I'll tell you the plot is basically like a hard ass, um, uh, colonel who like you know chasing Osama bin Laden out of the caves in Afghanistan 20 years ago right like always in the action divorced multiple kids like they don't see him he's kind of a, not a good family man because he was always about his career he thinks he's going to get promoted instead he gave the wrong interview to somebody they, they're publishing his quotes verbatim he's in a shit ton of trouble the army wants to bury him so they send him to the least important army base the United States has, which is in the Netherlands. It's called Shinnen. It's a real place. It's uh, It doesn't have any military facilities. It just supports other military bases. You know, like, so, but it's in the Netherlands, and because of that, they have to follow Dutch law. So, like, you know, there's half of the people that work there are Dutch, and, like... <laughs> this is fun. I like yeah, this. Yeah, so, so it's, like, what if Stanley McChrystal, like, the, the toughest American sort of general, colonel type, 
what if they got sent to like basically a club med in the Netherlands that the army was throwing and he would be infuriated, you know? And like, and then we have other twists or whatever, but it's basically, but then what's nice about the army based comedy is like they live there. Yeah. They work there, you know, but it's in the Netherlands. So then we could go, you know, the contrast between the American sensibility, the Dutch sensibility, what does Dutch freedom mean? What does American freedom mean? They're supposed to be, they're there, you know, advancing the cause of freedom. What does that mean? You know, I think there's avenues to explore while having a fun sort of workplace setting. Did you sell it the room? It was on the, the Zoom? This is crazy. I didn't even sell it on the Zoom. We turned in a story document or a, a pitch document. And they, it, I, it's because of the strike, honestly. They were just like, can you get us a pilot of this immediately? You know, they closed the deal for it in a week and a half. Oh my God. That's the craziest thing. Cause this happened in, this happened at the beginning of the month. So I was, they were like, can you write a pilot in a month? And I was like, yeah. I was like, can a deal get done in a month? Cause deals for guys, you guys don't know, deals take four months, three months, three, four months on average. Yeah. Some take six. Yeah. I'm in a sixer right now. It's fucking tough. That's amazing. Congrats. Yeah. That was nice. It was. It's been nice, and it, you know the great thing is we didn't. We didn't. You know, I don't want to bum everybody out. You know, it's tough times in the writing business. We're gonna be on a strike. I I am lucky. I'm gonna get a chunk of change right before, so that's great. But this thing might. What might kill this thing is the strike, because hmm. what's gonna really uh, hammer. Uh, why we've honestly why we've never had less leverage as a union is because what strikes really do well is fuck up a network schedule. <laughs> but broadcast has never been less, you know, important. And so the streamers are, you know, Netflix even bragged the other day. Did you see that? Yeah. We have uh, a bunch of content on the backlog. We, we've been uh, stocking up scripts. We can just, we can keep it, we, you know, we can last longer. They're like, you know, in their bunker. Mm -hmm. <laughs> They're like mm -hmm. rows of canned food. Be like, <laughs> well, we're doing very well. Well, Fox is, you know, anything that has to air daily content. Like, you know, and it, it the strikes in previous years have killed entire shows. Like it killed Moonlighting. It kid, it's killed hits. Like, yeah. You know, if I was Warner Brothers, who owns Abbott Elementary or ABC, who airs it, I'd be like, "Fuck, that's possibly a billion dollar property that could take it. We could lose hundreds of millions of dollars on Abbott alone." Yeah. You know, but there's less of those shows. Yeah. You know, so so I, th you know, that used to be like there was ten of those shows. Like, well, we can't, you know, Lost or whatever. You know, we we can't lose a season of Lost. You know. Yeah. And now it's just. You know, so this could go away through the strike, but we need, you know, the industry is so broken, you know, perfectly happy to do this collective action, even if it kills this thing, um, because we have to, we got to do it. Well, Joel, thank you for coming to talk with me today. I, I really do appreciate you coming all the way to the canyon, spend a little time walking Listen, me through. If there was any coworker and friend I'd want to spend 420 with, whenever this came out, we're recording it on 420. We have <laughs> That's not. That's true. Not we, yet. We have I'm going to walk you to the car, though, and see maybe what your appetite's yeah, are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we might hang out and enjoy the holiday, but that um, is very fitting. We didn't even talk about our experience and that we liked each other, but I always liked you, Matt. Thank you. Thank you. At first, I think, you know what's so funny? My first actual lunch was with you and someone else like my first the first day they ordered zanku for everyone but like day three or four you were going off lot somewhere that was close by i followed you and then i didn't have my badge and so then it became like a debacle and like in some way uh i was like you know we we became friendly we did and um 
You you I gave you shit because a couple times you took naps in the room. Yeah, I took naps. I took naps in the room. Yeah, I told a really bad off color joke once, like day three, because I didn't know the rules of how this works. Yeah. And Bill was just like, "Come in with a joke," and I was like, "Hmm, what shitty ass joke for, like that I've heard in passing should I share?" Uh, I did a, the really bad salad bowl bit. Yeah, we don't have to get into that. No, we're not. But like, yes. Seth, Seth, Seth has a picture of that, and he sends it to me every once in a while. And he's like, "I own you." <laughs> <laughs> You yeah, you came in, you came in hot, you came in hot, but and you came in hot and loud. I just didn't know. You didn't you know? know, and and I, you know, but the thing was, I very very early on, it was clear. Oh, this guy's got a good heart. You know, this guy like is a decent person. He cares about the right things. He's funny, and I appreciated that because you had worked as assistant on the executive side. You were able to see the full business, which a lot of comedy writers can't do. I'm not as good at it as you are, but I try to understand the business, understand all the things we're up against, how to navigate it. So I, I can, ha I like having those conversations, and you were all you, you like having them too. You know, studio guy. That's Studio what Laura guy. calls me. Yes. I think it's so funny. Like she still calls me and is like, "Hey, I have Laura Morin calling for you, Laura Moran, whatever." <laughs> she got so mad at me because I couldn't pronounce her last well, name. Well, you have known her for like know, nine but years. But. I know. But uh, yeah, so it was great to you know see you again. Always, I you know some of those of us old undateable writers will get together every you know year, year and a half, two years. But it's you know too long to sense out. We're glad to do it. Glad to be here. Everybody, go watch Brockmire on Hulu and keep your eye or Minx or just the pilot. Just watch the pilot. I worked very on the pilot. It's very good. Yeah. Or season two of Manx. And then uh, and when you're done with Joel's show, maybe season two of The Wire just sort of sprinkled in there. And then if uh, in 2024, if you happen to see an army comedy starring a, a very famous actor from stand up from the 90s and 2000s, uh, that that's my baby. The Dane uh, Cook uh, Netherlands. <laughs> 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 that's it, baby. <laughs> Oh. oh, the age of consent in, uh, <laughs> in the Netherlands. Google Dane Cook's girlfriend <laughs> to get that show. Bye, guys. Thank Bye. you, Joel.